Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 137 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm down here in the bunker with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling tonight, Dave? I'm doing okay, Jeff. Uh, I think we call it the vomitorium, yes, right? Isn't right. that kind of our theme? Yeah. yeah Taking yeah, yeah. in the classics. And keeping it down. That's correct. Right. Keeping them down. Uh, I'm doing okay. I got over some stomach um, issues last week. They were a bit debilitating, mm. and now I have some uh, sinus issues a little bit. Yeah. It's like one illness that just sort of travels around. Yeah, indeed. I, I've got it too. I'm sure our listeners can maybe hear that in our in our voices this evening. Yeah, I'm I'm like a, a podcaster in resonance. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Okay. Well, that, that part of you hasn't uh, suffered from <laughs> from the illness. You mean the terrible puns? The terrible puns. They're they're back. So yeah. I was driving home today. Yeah. This is not a pun. Okay. It's just a potentially amusing story. You know where 28th Street intersects with 131? That I do. general area? Yep. You know, there's a restaurant there, El Pollo Loco. Yes. Do you know that restaurant? I do, yes. Yeah, they serve uh, desayunos, they serve breakfast and so forth. Yeah, the crazy chicken. Yes. Have you ever looked at the logo that's over the door of El Pollo Loco? I don't think I've ever paused. It's a chicken. This is very disturbing. It's a chicken with arms (laughs) and wings. And not just normal arms, but big muscular arms. Wait, the, he has arms, but in addition to wings? In, wi- in addition to wings. Okay, that's right. It's not that the arms are taking the place of the wings. Oh. And these are not normal arms. Yeah. These are just massive, brawny arms. Well, that's because this pollo is loco. You think that's why? <laughs> I think so, yeah. So we're driving along, and I said to one of my children, look at that chicken. <laughs> Can you believe that chicken has such muscular arms? And their reply was, I think it can take you, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. Wa- I wouldn't want to go toe to toe with a with a, a winged and armed chicken. That's right. Did yeah. you say toe to toe? Maybe that's just the think you my did. stuffy nose. Uh, so El yeah. Pollo Loco. Yeah, I don't think I'll be frequenting that establishment. No, the, the chicken is it's just something off. Right. So that that logo in and of itself would is uh, would turn you away. Apotropaic. Yeah. There we go. See, that's uh, we connect it to the classics. Nice. In the same way that people who dedicated bronze caldra yeah. at uh, Delphi would put a griffin's head on the rim they would in order to scare away evil spirits apparently El Pollo Loco has put a large <laughs> muscular a bicep chicken above uh, the entrance to scare people shrine. away scare people away from buying the products away customers <laughs> oh man is that plausible I, I suppose so yeah, I don't but know. next time I'm, I'm in that direction I'm gonna I'm check gonna, it out I'm gonna slow down I'm not gonna stop but I'm gonna slow down to, yeah. to peer over there that's right yeah so Jeff, how are you feeling this evening? I'm feeling I'm probably, as I think as our listeners can tell, I'm I'm not feeling all that great. I mean, my my voice is rough, uh, but I think like you, I'm kind of coming out of I'm uh, the the worst is behind me. I think so. And so I'm, um, but I'm looking forward to to getting back into it. It's been a while since we've been at the desk. Here. Yes, yep. ad astra prospera, right? Yeah, exactly. And I was thinking, you know, health isn't 100, percent but. If we don't record an episode soon, yeah. people are going to tune out altogether. They're going to bail. That's right. I know. So we clawed our way in here, and, uh, and what are we talking about tonight? Well, we're back into um, the, the Maru text. We're talking about the history of education in antiquity. Okay. Yeah, this, I think this is part four of our of our series on this. This is Henri-Irene Maru. Mm-hmm. Very nicely done. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I've been practicing all week. 
the extra layer of coding on my vocal cords probably helped with the French pronunciation. Indeed, indeed, yeah. yeah. But before we get to that, yeah. we have a shout out. We do have a shout out, yes. And this comes from uh, a one Steve Westfall. Mm-hmm. Now, Steve gave us a very thorough um, description of what we might say about him. Yeah. And he said at the end, this was so gracious, as I indicated previously, please edit profusely. <laughs> Sorry for being long-winded. Yeah. So can you can you uh, edit on the fly, Jeff? You think we can, you know, take things out as needed? Maybe put in some other stuff we want to. Sure. Yes. Uh, let me let me start it. Let it start us off. He writes. Um, Early in college, I thought I might be headed towards ministry, so I took a year of New Testament Greek as a sophomore at SMU in Dallas at Southern Methodist. I believe so. After some uncertainty about and about that and a change of majors, I transferred to the University of Texas at Austin, where in the last semester before graduating, I took a one-semester intensive beginning classical Greek course. So the, um, just looking ahead, I mean, right. the, the the number of languages that he has, that Steve has dipped his toes in is pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. It but is. I'm wondering about your metaphor. What, about the, the dipping the dipping toes? Dipping of toes into the language. Yeah, why not? I don't know. Okay. I just, is it apt? Is it apt? Yeah. I, I, don't I, don't metaphors have to be apt? No. I, mean, I think I think people know what I'm talking about. I'm just curious. To dip one's toes and is to is to try it. Okay, right? go ahead. All right, to, I'm right. Sorry. Okay, right. Maybe to stick one's tongue into the river of languages would that be better? <laughs> That's terrible. That's terrible. Right. Exactly. I'm gonna stick with my toes. Stick one's finger into the dike of languages. <laughs> Something like that. I was just curious. Right. Don't let me interrupt. Sorry. Um. Well, pick it up there. What else? Okay. What else is, has Steve uh, done here? He says when I began a THM program that fall at Dallas Theological Seminary, I was able to skip the first year of Koine Greek. I had five or six Greek exegesis courses, but didn't develop my reading ability as well as I should have. This was partly due to sloth. But also, you got to admire a man who's honest. Indeed. But also due to a pedagogical method widely used in seminaries that emphasizes grammatical analysis instead of reading facility. I got a THM degree with a specialization in Old Testament lit and Semitic languages. The languages included Biblical Hebrew, Aramaic, and Ugaritic. Mm, how's your Ugaritic? It's awful, but I have always <laughs> wanted to study Ugaritic. Really? Mostly because of the name. Oh, it's a great name. It's impressive. Yeah. Ugaritic. I mean, how many people walking this planet can say that they know any Ugaritic. Uh, not many. Not many. You want to continue? Sure. He says, after that, I remained for a year in their THD program in Old Testament, where I had courses in Deuteronomy, ancient Near Eastern history, and Akkadian. Mm-hmm. But I was not happy with the program and left for the University of Chicago, where I thrived in a doctoral program in uh, Northwest Semitic Philology, taking courses at both the Oriental Institute and the Divinity School. Now, Akkadian, wasn't that one of the first uh, games Atari released? Yeah. On the, what, the 2400? Right. It was um, really kind of blocky and had just kind of like a, a bouncing square. That's correct. Here. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, University of Chicago is, again, one of a... Of a, has to be kind of a dwindling number of places in the world where you can study these languages. Yes, right? what they used to call Oriental languages and now they call Near Eastern. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah. Founded by uh, J.D. Rockefeller, actually. Is that right? Rockefeller money behind the University of Chicago. Oh, fantastic. Yep. Yeah. Um, he goes on, he says, I took more Akkadian, including Amarna letters and historical texts like Sennacherib's prism inscription in which he describes his invasion of the Levant and shutting up King Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Now there's a metaphor. <laughs> Notice Sennacherib wasn't dipping his toes into the politics of Jerusalem, huh? huh? He, he might have, but uh, I'm with you here. Okay. Bird in a cage? Bird in a cage. All right. right, sorry. I also studied more Old Testament literature, history, archaeology, Hebrew, uh, Aramaic, Syriac, Ugaritic, there it is again, Phoenician, Punic, and other Northwest Semitic inscriptions. It's an Ugaritic callback is what that is. That's, what, that's right, exactly right. Yeah. Uh, Steve says, I can relate one humorous anecdote from my time 
at the University of Chicago. Needing to pass a French reading test and never having studied French, I took a summer course for grad students in French reading knowledge. I did that. Did you do that? Yes. Yes. That, yeah. same kind of, that same kind of intensive? Yes. Yep. He says, and I do mean reading. No emphasis on pronunciation at all. Mm-hmm. I also audited the first quarter of Latin at the University of Chicago. Later, when I had to write a philological paper on a Punic inscription from France known as the Marseille Tarif inscription, I needed to consult an important article on the subject that was written in Italian. Oh, man. I found that between my eager knowledge of Latin and my better knowledge of French, I was able to understand the paper in Italian and even quote from it in my paper. I guess that's called amore. Oh, I'm sorry. I misread it. Synergy. Synergy. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's synergy, not amore. I think you've probably experienced that, that um, having a grounding in Latin and you realize he opens up all kinds of doors. And yeah. then, you know, they, they, like the door to the fast food restaurant. Exa- this the, is where you work. <laughs> Exactly. Right. I was thinking more if you if you encounter some sprinklings of Spanish, French, and Italian, oh, yeah. you can usually make some sense out of it. I have to say, I find Spanish incredibly easy. Yes. Fran- uh, French is more challenging. I, I struggle with the pronunciation. But right. Right. Steve goes on. Yes. After all of that and taking comprehensive exams. Yeah. Oh, he's in the information technology field. Met his wife, got married, had our son David, and the rest is history. Uh, of course, now um, Steve Westfall, his son David, was our student. Yes, he was. And we traveled uh, with Greece to him. To, uh, what did I say? You, we traveled to Greece with there him. There you go. Yes. Preposition trouble. <laughs> yeah. And the year was 2011. I believe, yes, that's, I think that's he, right. Yeah. We traveled along and we had a nickname for him. Yes, we did. Which we won't share. Because <laughs> we gave nicknames to all of our students, yes, we if did. you remember. Yes, we did. Yep. Yep. You want to pick it up there? Sure. Um, so he says, since my time at the University of Chicago, biblical studies has remained my first love. I've done a good bit of teaching in the adult education programs in the churches in the Chicago area. For two years, I even got to teach Greek to some eager parishioners who wanted to learn to read New Testament in the original language. I use the Athenauts. Oh, oh, you're going to mention one of my competitors. Oh, what's that? Oh, the uh, the, the, the book that's coming he up He meant here? to say, oh. I wanted to use Moss Method. Oh, right. But it wasn't available. That's what he meant. Okay. I, yeah, I, I, skip I over that, that, would you? But he said he used the um, Athenauts textbook, which I, um, I've used a, a couple of times in okay. the past. Yeah. Um, he is active in a parish of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, uh, where he's a ruling elder. Um, he has a, a, he has a particular love for the theologian J.I. Packer. Mm-hmm. Um, he sounds like he stays very, very active in very, in, in different societies. Um, the Evangelical Theological Society, Society of Biblical Literature. Um, and he says he just returned home last week from this year's meetings in San Antonio, where I was able to room with my son, David, and hear some very good presentations. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Yes. That is a fascinating life. Impressive. And I have to say that, um, uh, I mean, I, Steve is not a young man, but no. his the the memory of everything that he did. It's incredible. And kind of being able to kind of recall that he took this course in this semester. That's right. I'm, I'm, I, mean, I can't keep my CV up to date. I, I, can't, I, I can't do that now. That's no. A, and, that's, uh, a, that's impressive. Yes. Uh, maybe by the age of 73, Jeff, we will mm-hmm. have learned some Ugaritic words. We could make that like on our bucket list. I can only hope. Our right. Bukaritic list, something right. like that. Is there a particular work in Ugaritic that you'd say, oh man, I wish I could read that in the original? Mm, I'm, I'm, nothing I'm, I can think of. No. Um, the Strength of Chickens, something like that. <laughs> this gonna be, we're going to keep coming back possibility. to this, No, I don't know. So, Steve, right. we really appreciate uh, you being actually a patron of this uh, of this podcast, yeah. a great supporter, generous patron. We appreciate that. Uh, you and Mrs. Westfall out there listening, sending us ideas, um, sending us some great stuff. We really appreciate it. Yes, indeed. All right, Dave, let's get into it. this. So we are back into the Maru text, 
And um, let's uh, could you give our, our audience just a quick yeah. overview? So this is a history of education in antiquity, and it's part four, written in 1956 in French by this man Maru Henry Irenee Maru. A uh, French historian who described himself as a Christian humanist, uh, best known for his work, The History of Education in Antiquity, what we're covering today. Mm-hmm. But he also did work on sources Chrétien, uh, the early Christian uh, letter to Diognetus, the only manuscript of which perished in a fire at the University of Strasbourg during the Franco-Prussian War. Oh, I hate stories like that. Yeah, I do too. But thankfully, he, you know, he, um, he got a, a manuscript. He got a copy of it. So Fantastic. Yep. You know what's in it. So he wrote this work, and what he's doing is he's tracing the history of education uh, in the ancient world, starting with Homer, specifically describing the transition from what he calls a warrior culture, mm-hmm. a typical day in the vomitorium, to a scribe culture. Right. So moving away from the glorification of the solitary hero a la Achilles uh, to someone who's not entirely in the mold of um, Odysseus, because mm-hmm. Odysseus was still a, a bandy-legged hero. But Odysseus uses more brain than brawn. Right. And that's kind of the beginning of the development of the scribe culture, which was to become regnant uh, in you know civilization. Right, right. So um, in previous episodes, we, we were talking about how a lot of this, uh, like the warrior culture, uh, that form of education um, began with the Spartans. That's right. And But um, uh, kind of faded from Sparta fairly quickly. That's right. And and then as we'll see, things uh, will rapidly can transfer over to Athens, where we see kind of the more scribal culture take root. That's uh, right. Yeah. Thucydides described uh, in the, the funeral speech of Pericles, mm-hmm. uh, through the mouth of, of Pericles, Thucydides described Greece as the education of the world and Athens as the education of Greece. Mm. Now, that's said with a great deal of, I don't know, jingoism or patriotism, depending on your perspective. But that came to be the dominant view uh, since that time. That there's something unique about Athens, and it's particular, uh, particularly their mode of education. Mm. So when we approached this topic, you know, a few episodes ago, we said, this is a long book. We're going to interrupt it with some more occasional um, sylvi, that is occasional kinds of uh, topics, but we're going to go through the whole thing a little bit at a time yeah. and examine this. And we gave some reasons, if you remember, you know, right? Why why cover this topic at all on a classic themed podcast? Yeah. What were some of those things, Jeff? Well, we we talked about how um, uh, we were se- ourselves were were educated in the, the classical mode. Um, we consider ourselves to be lifelong learners. That's right. And uh, education doesn't stop when you when you leave school. It's an it's an ongoing. Um, think to, until until we die. That's right. Um, uh, we ourselves are, are, are teachers. This is part of our profession. It's mm-hmm. always good to kind of step back and, and ask ourselves, why are we doing this? And, and what do we want our students to get out of this? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also um, a topic that we've we've kind of touched upon, but um, we'll, we'll probably, I think we'll save for a specific episode or episodes talking about this resurgence in classical education that's out there uh, in America right now. That's right. And kind of what do we... What at the do K-12 we, level. At the K-12 level, right, exactly. And um, kind of uh, investigating what do we mean or what do these schools mean when they talk about come here and get a classical education? Mm-hmm. Does it have anything to do with what we're talking about in this book? Right. And one of my contentions has been, it's not maybe a very popular contention, that as good as the resurgence in um, classical education is, it's often a poorly defined term. Hmm. It's not really clear necessarily to the persons involved as to what what they're doing, and there's a great deal of disagreement as to precisely what they're doing. Right. Some have said 
A classical education is the study of the ancient Greeks and Romans. My understanding now is that the persons who make that claim as the definition of classical education uh, is a very um, rapidly diminishing group. Hmm. And they see um, classical education more in terms of the formation of the soul and the cultivation of virtue in particular. Okay. This is a, a topic that's important to me as uh, the classical world interfaces with the Christian world. Because my contention is uh, for all the overlap, for all the continuity and similarity between the Greco-Roman authors and the, say, the church fathers, mm -hmm. uh, the discontinuities are much stronger. And it's very easy to overlook them um, if one becomes enamored, as I am, of the Greco-Roman authors. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's just a little bit of a kind of a foreshadowing of some of the things we may be talking about. Sure. And as I was reading the, the chapters we're covering tonight, one of the things that struck me is that, you know, in in trying to answer this question of what do we mean by by um, by classical education, if we were to, to try to answer that, well, to to try to mimic or build upon what the ancient Greeks were doing in terms of education, well, that's a whole Pandora's box in and of itself. I mean, just reading these these uh, couple of chapters is that uh, if, you, if we were to go back to the 5th century, you'd find um, a, a dozen different answers to the question of what an education That's right. should look like, right? So, I mean, this that this um, this wrestling between um, a kind of uh, sophist uh, uh, point of view where education is, is very utilitarian, it's very pragmatic. S yeah, strictly practical. Practical. You do this um, to win in court, yep. to win an argument. A more kind of uh, broader response was saying, no, uh, this education should be taught to to teach excellence, mm -hmm. right? To make to make good citizens. And so uh, you know, even amongst the ancient Greeks and Romans, there wasn't a, a, it's not a monolith. There's no consensus. Right, there's no consensus, right? It's quite surprising. So as we get into the book, uh, part one, the origins of classical education, this is from Homer uh, to the fourth century uh, educator and uh orator Isocrates. Mm -hmm. Isocrates was a uh, contemporary of Demosthenes. You know, he was a somewhat older contemporary of Plato, not to be confused with Socrates, right. but Isocrates. So previous episodes, we covered education in Homeric times. That was chapter one, chapter two, Spartan education. Mm -hmm. uh, the third episode, we dealt with the uh, topic of pederasty yep. in classical education, a somewhat delicate topic. Tonight, we're starting out with chapter four, which is the, quote, old Athenian education, what Maru calls the old Athenian education. Okay. So Jeff, as we get into this chapter, can you read the opening sentence of this chapter? Because I think it's really helpful to see how he uh, ties this to the comedian Aristophanes. Sure. So chapter four starts out like this. I have borrowed the expression, hey, archaia paideia from Aristophanes, and I shall use it as he did to denote the type of education current in Athens in the first half of the fifth century, before the great changes that were made towards the end of the century by the Sophists and Socrates. Excellent. Right. So that is the watershed moment. Um, many people consider Socrates one of the Sophists, yes. though he uh, labors extensively in Plato's dialogues to distinguish himself from all the other Sophists. Right. To the casual observer, he would be just another one of the Sophists. He's yes. another Protagoras, he's another Gorgias, uh, he's like one of those fellows. But whether he belongs to the Sophists or not, um, 399, right, which mm -hmm. is the, the death of Socrates by execution with Hemlock, mm -hmm. That's the watershed moment, the end of the old Athenian education, the Hearchia Paideia, and the beginning of something entirely new. Right. 
So this chapter is going to talk about what was education like in Athens prior to the death of Socrates, basically. Okay. So page 36, <clears throat> Mahru says, The decisive step has been taken from a warrior to a scribe culture. So, although this earlier type of education was old-fashioned and even archaic in comparison with classical education in its fully developed form, it nevertheless represented a considerable advance in the general evolution from a warrior to a scribe culture. So this quote places the chapter in the, the, the broad stream, right? We've moved away from Homer. It's not going to be like what we will see, say, at the end of the 4th century, 100 years later, but it's a decisive step away from the warrior culture into the world of the scribe. Yes. Now, one of the things that... Um I was kind of curious about, and I think Maru kind of, he, he touches on this, but is that um, it, it was never quite clear to me exactly why this shift is happening. I mean, I think we can, we can kind of talk about this as kind of a, a sh yes, a shift between from Sparta to Athens and, you know, the, the representative cultures, you know, the warrior culture of Sparta and the more kind of philosophical culture of, of Athens. It's just, it's a different culture and that's where just kind of the, the culture is moving. Um, but I, I never quite, I couldn't quite understand if Maru gave us an answer as to well, what, what exactly flipped the switch? Did it have something to do with kind of uh, the moving away from the tyrants and towards democracy mm -hmm. and, and kind of that particular shift and these other shifts go along with it? I mean, what did you, what, how would you kind of answer that question? Of why do we have this shift from the warrior culture to the scribe culture? Well, he kind of hints at this a little bit when he mentions Thucydides. I'm not sure it uh, answers the question of why. But if you see that third paragraph yeah. there, yeah. Uh, maybe you could read um, just the first sentence. Sure. Uh, so he writes, According to Thucydides, the Athenians were the first to abandon the old practice of going around the streets armed and putting aside their armor to adopt a less violent and a more civilized way of life. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, there isn't really an explanation right. other than to say uh, that Thucydides' remark is the Athenians decided we're not going to walk around the city armed anymore. We're going to lay down our weapons uh, as private citizens and, you know, act in a different way. Yeah. I'm not equating, just for the record, I'm not equating the abandonment of self-defense. Right. You know, and the means there too. I'm not equating that with civilization. Right, right, uh, right. I'm just reporting what Thucydides says the Athenians did. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I, it, was a, it was a definite demilitarizing of the society because uh, there was no private police force and arms were carried in a kind of, um, I don't know, it, it, there were a lot of factions within the state. Yeah. And they, there was constant warfare between the different tribes, something that we saw um, in previous times under the Pisistratids in particular. Yeah. No, no I, I think that that's right. And I think uh, later on, um, Maru says something along the lines of, that you know, being a being a citizen soldier, of course, was very important uh, to being an Athenian male, right? So you know, the, the Athenians didn't set aside the importance of being a soldier, but the um, the role of being a politician right. uh, comes to the fore, and and uh, and even so, so much of um, of this early ed, early education was was geared towards um, what kind of education is going to make you uh, good in the assembly. That's right, right, and so that becomes much more important than. Than your role as a as a warrior on the battlefield. Yes, yeah. and this is what Maru says on page thirty seven. He says it seems clear 
that military training had ceased to play any important part in the education of the young Greek. In this respect, Athenian education, which was to be a model and inspiration to the whole of classical Greece, had quite different aims from those of later Sparta. In Athens, children and young men were not regarded primarily as future hoplites and required to join up and keep in step for 13 years. In fact, military training seems to have played so small a part in this, quote, old education, that the historian, for lack of evidence, may justly doubt whether it ever existed. Yeah. So the disappearance of a military education, uh, when we were going through the chapter on Sparta, there was a specific name for every grade level, and right. it was oh, often right. something violent, right? This is the <laughs> leader of this group, and you get beat up at this age, and then you go to the barracks at this age, and you don't come back until that age. Yes. Um, Athenian culture was much less regimented. Yes, right. And, and, and then he also talks about how um, over time that kind of that, that centrality of the warrior becomes sublimated to uh, sport. Exactly, and so um, that becomes the place. Uh, it's on the the um, the playing field, right? Where you can kind of exercise those military ideals um, and keep them alive, but without the bloodshed of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Now, the Athenians did have a compulsory military education, and this is something that Maru describes on page thirty-seven. The so-called ephibia. Could you uh, take us through that a little bit, Jeff? Sure. Athens was later to develop a remarkable system of compulsory military training known as Ephibia, whereby its young citizens were obliged to do two years' service between the ages of 18 and 20. But there is little evidence about it, and it does not seem to have attained its full development until the end of the 4th century. There has been a great deal of discussion about the date of its first appearance, but this can hardly be placed earlier than the Peloponnesian War, 431 to 404. A kind of Ephibia may have existed before that time, but then the word could only have meant the coming-of-age ceremonies that marked the adolescent's entry into adult life, not the military training of classical times. Yeah. Right. So a general demilitarization of society, maybe the defeat uh, in the Peloponnesian War. I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves a yeah. little bit because if we go into the 4th century, then we're out of the old Athenian education. Yeah. But one has to believe that the disillusionment that came upon the Athenians because of their defeat in the Peloponnesian War at the hands of the Spartans yeah. would have accelerated uh, this departure from a militarized lifestyle. Right. And even, uh, you know, Maru mentions that paragraph, these, these coming-of-age ceremonies. I think we noted about how in Sparta, the coming-of-age ceremonies, kind of they went from kind of the symbolic to the actual bloodletting. Right. And it seems in Athens we have kind of the reverse. It's 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 moving again. That's part of that abandonment of the of the military um, ideal is even in coming age ceremonies are kind of distancing themselves from something violent and and um, mm-hmm. and uh, having to do with arms. Yeah. Now he gives a reason for this and it lies in the difference between a democracy and autocratic government. He says uh, in that on that same page the new democratic tactic of using heavy infantry did not demand any very elaborate technical qualifications on the part of the soldier. Hmm. Pre-military and paramilitary exercises were neglected. In Homeric times, there had been tournaments like that between Ajax and Diomedes at the funeral games held in honor of Patroclus. From these more or less mock battles, the succeeding age had inherited a kind of contest called armed combat, haplomachia. Hmm. But this had simply been a competition, a matter of pure sport, and in any case, it had hardly any connection with education. So in other words, to serve in the Athenian military, you were a citizen um, soldier at all times, so you didn't need the level of expertise uh, that one saw in the Spartan training, for example. Right, 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 right. So when you you look back on it, um, we tend to think that the 
I have tended to think, I should say, that the Spartans were the superior army in a generally violent and militarized world. I now think that that probably is a little bit inaccurate. The Spartans were a superior army because they were a professional army. That's the reason. And the other armies were not as um, capable because they didn't spend all of their time training. Yeah. They just, they came together like an actual militia. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, and then I, I liked his, his point about how just the changing in, in tactics also influences is that um, as they, I mean, as you move toward, more towards like uh, the phalanx type of warfare, you no longer need, um, you know, the, the daring do of the individual Homeric warrior. That's right. Right. And so if you're just kind of part you're of this. cog in the machine. If you're just a part of the tank. Right. Right. Well, then it doesn't require this, this uh, yeah. 24-7 training. Right. Yeah. Speaking of which, this reminds me. Uh, there were these two goldfish in a tank. Yes. And one says to the other, hey, do you know how to drive this thing? <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. I got that joke from Chandler. So Chandler, if you're listening, thank you. Chan the, the, from Friends? No. Oh, so some, you actually know somebody named Chandler? I do know someone oh. named Chandler. Is that okay? That's fine. Okay. Just, I've never met one before. So He's a great guy. Okay. Gave me a, a killer joke. Cute little pun that people love. Nice. Don't they? I think so. All right, moving on. So we go on, and then uh, Maru gives us a very nice, a tripartite division here. Three different sections here in chapter four. Democratization of the aristocratic tradition. Then we have the first appearance of the school. Uh, then we have physical education, musical education, education through poetry, and literary education. So I think I said tripartite, but that seems more like about... There was a few parts, a few more parts. Yeah. There. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that chicken has brawny arms. <laughs> so democratization of the aristocratic tradition. Let's mm -hmm. start with that first uh, and foremost. Okay. Right? So Athenian education became democratized. That's the point of what we've been saying thus far. No longer highly specialized. Anybody could get an education. Wasn't wedded to a um, warrior Homeric ideal. But it kept closely to its aristocratic origins, says Maru, page 38. And in its principles and organization, it remained an education for gentlemen. Mm. So Plato insists that this would always tend to remain the privilege of an elite, since few were prepared to suffer the sacrifices it entailed, and few could appreciate its advantages. Mm. Its advantages. Yeah. Now, I want to, this, when I was reading this, um, I want to get your take on this, is that uh, this democratization of, of education where we have a, a move from uh, kind of the elite to um, a broader section of society. Do you see a corollary with that uh, in terms of how we think about how college education was 100 years ago as to what it is today? Yes, I do see a correlation. All right. In, in that there's kind of the, the, in the culture right now, it's this idea, well, everybody should go to college. Yes. Right? And I think on the whole, it's not a good thing. I, I would agree with that, right? Um, but maybe somewhere in the middle between what we have now and the idea that it was just for an elite class to right. um, to, to train the, the, the only classes that were had the proper breeding to be leaders, right? Yes, but it's very difficult to talk about these things without sounding like an elitist in the wrong sense. Well, I've had this conversation with people many times, uh -huh. and I say not everybody should go to college. Right. And they say, well, you know, shouldn't everyone have the chance to learn? And I say, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. But that's not the same thing as saying that everyone should go to college. Right. I also don't accept the notion that everyone can equally well learn the same amount of material. Right. Well, I, 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 Isn't it just patent that people have different capacities 
for different kinds of learning. This should not be controversial. No, but no. then someone might object. Well, so are you saying some people aren't as smart as others? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that problematic? It's not problematic unless you equate, which I don't, intelligence with moral worth right. or dignity or value. I don't think that a less intelligent person is less valuable than a more intelligent person. Right. In fact, my experience is that I would, on the whole, rather spend time with less intelligent persons because they seem um, less intelligent than what? I don't know. The national average, maybe? Right. Uh, because they seem more pleasant. Yeah. And less given to be um, in error about uh, things they don't know. Right. Exactly. When I, th when I think about my most unpleasant experiences I as an academic, <laughs> it's, it's, <all. laughs> it's, it's been at, the, at conferences and, and, and sitting through uh, one insufferable paper after another and listening to right. you know, squabblings about, about um, you know, a... Um, Inanities. About Yoda subscripts and, and such. Right. Right? But, um, but I think that's, you know, so what you're describing is very different from, again, what Maru describes is that um, is as education becomes democratized, uh, the elites in Athens, it rankled them. Yes, right? it rankled them. And yeah. so they found ways to carve out and retain... Right some of the aristocratic privileges yes. or uh, penumbrae, right? Yes. I just marked myself out as a, <laughs> a word nerd, I suppose, uh, of what it meant to have an education. Right, which is very different. It's a very different thing when you say not everybody uh, should or needs to go to college, right? No. You're, you're not saying that to kind of preserve an elite privilege. No. No, 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 of course. I just wanted to make that clear. Only if one thinks that having... A, an expensive and extensive education makes one a better person. Right, right. If you believe that, then if you say not everyone should have that, then you're saying something morally offensive. Yes. But I don't accept that premise. Yeah, exactly. The problem is I think that a lot of um, educated people do ex accept that premise. Mm -hmm. And so they only want to associate with persons who are like them uh, in that regard. Yeah. No, is, I, is that is that possible? I think that's, I think that's very true. Yep. All right, so can you read the second? We've gotten a little off topic, maybe digressed a little bit. But can oh. you read the second paragraph here on 38? Yes. Um, even well on in the 5th century, education was still mainly for the aristocracy, the great landed proprietors who had wealth and consequently a good deal of leisure, rather than the average Athenian who earned his humble livelihood as a peasant or a craftsman or a small shopkeeper. Now, let me ask a question. Yeah. Are you now in your educated PhD mind looking down on those little peons that are peasants or craftsmen or small shopkeepers? Not at all. Not at all. Just checking. No. Um, I mean, I have to say from, um, you know, I teach at a, at a community college, which I, I, I know from, I'm sure there are many uh, uh, academics at four-year institutions who would thumb their nose at, at a junior college. They right? wouldn't dip their toes in a four-year no. college. And so it's in, and having been there now for about seven years, it's really kind of opened my eyes to I, I mean, I find myself thinking a lot about this question of, you know, um, what is the purpose of a college education, yes. right? And so, I mean, a lot of a lot of the language at a community college is very pragmatic, right? Right. Um, and a lot of my students are there. I'm I'm here for two years because I want to do this very specific thing, right? right? And when they they wander into one of my humanities classes, um, they just all a lot of them know. Well, you know, all I know is that I got to have two credits of this stuff. Right. And this class was open. But then you make it sweet for them, don't you, Winkle? But then, but then I try to, then I, I think about that. I've, I've come to really kind of admire that. Like, yeah. You know, I'm, I want to become an HVAC tech. Yes. And, and so, but I, and I'm like, I have to take this course of study. And I think my, my community college to its credit says, you know, even if you're going to be an HVAC tech, that's something very specific, very right. technical. Hey, 
there's um you can be well rounded in these particular areas. Right. And and that applies that anybody can do that. Yeah. yeah. So the year was uh 2001. Yeah. Here's a little anecdote. And uh we, we were buying my wife and I our second home, moving out of a townhouse in Leesburg, Virginia, moving into a larger home in Winchester, Virginia because we had kids now. And uh the guy who inspected our home, home inspector, mm-hmm. right? I in some ways it's a skilled job. It's it's a valuable job. It, I don't think it takes years of education to become a home inspector. Yeah. I could be wrong. But anyway, he starts inspecting the home. Oh, well, what do you do for a living? I say with more than a little embarrassment, I, I teach at a, at a local college. Oh, what do you teach? Still more embarrassment. I, I teach Greek and Latin. Oh, the classics. Yeah, I do. Then he starts quoting to me from um, Caesar's De Bello Gallico. What he learned in high school some 30 to 40 years ago. So he was, he was dropping the all of Gauls divided into three parts. That's right. <laughs> and I was so impressed. Uh, not because I think people who have those kinds of jobs are not educated. It was just incongruous. I just didn't see it coming. Right. You know? And uh, so to me is an example of you can never judge a book by its cover. People will have surprising interests. Yeah. Irrespective of their formal education. Now, an interesting detail in your story, though, is you mentioned embarrassment in, in saying well, that. Well, yes. Is it because you're, is it kind of coming from, well, what I do isn't practical? Exactly. Like, like, uh, <laughs> compared to what you're doing, sir? You're doing something so useful. <laughs> right, 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 right. If one of my students doesn't parse a verb correctly, you know, I, I can make them feel bad about it for a few minutes. But if someone buys a house and the wiring's wrong, right. you know, there's serious consequences. There's a lot more at stake. Exactly. Yeah. That's really interesting. All right, let me just finish that paragraph. Um, Maru writes, We can picture this aristocratic existence as the way of life, stripped of its warlike aspects of the Homeric night. It was essentially a fashionable sporting world. A fashionable sporting world. Yeah. So no more militarism. No. But still Homeric in the pursuit of sport. Yes. And this is how the Athenian aristocracy, when education was being democratized, this is how they retained their elite status. Okay. Isn't that interesting? That is really interesting. Yeah. So what was the sport that Maru says, quote, always remained the exclusive preserve of aristocratic families? Chariot racing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because well, it's, it's expensive. It's expensive to have horses in and a chariot. That's and right. To maintain that? Yes. Right? You right. got to buy chariot wax. You got to change the oil on the chariot. You got to get the under coating and the pinstriping and the exactly. finder's fee. Right. Right. There's a lot that goes into a chariot. Yes, exactly. And with the horses, I mean, you are, you are, you are spending money to feed an animal right. that, unlike a cow, is not producing anything. Right, <laughs> or a chicken, yeah. like not giving anything back. When is right? the last time a horse laid an egg? Yeah, it's it's been it's been a long time. It has. <laughs> so the animal is purely for conspicuous display. Yeah. Right of of wealth. And uh, I mentioned J.D. Rockefeller earlier in yeah. this uh, episode as the the money behind uh, the University of Chicago, because I, I just read this biography by um, Ron Chernow, mm-hmm. and he loved uh, racing fast horses and later automobiles. Um, because R- Rockefeller did? Yeah. Okay. Because I guess that was his, you know, his one um, thrill. The, the one place he was willing to waste money was on uh, horses and automobiles. Interesting. So yeah. for the Athenians, horse racing, chariot racing, and they also mention uh, Maru does hunting, right? Hunting, yeah. Because that's again not strictly necessary, right? It reminds me of uh, like fox hunting. That's right. And the English countryside of, the, of uh, like the elites um, with the with their their jackets and their right. their little helmets. That's right, and yeah. their trumpets. Yeah. yeah. So, so take a listen to this, Jeff, and tell me what you think. Okay. 
Well, it's some audio of an actual chariot race. No, no. no. <laughs> what do you think it is, really? That Come sounded on. like a like a Formula One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I dug that up on the internet yeah. because I thought that's kind of an analog, isn't it? Oh yeah. To anybody can drive a car, right? Right. You have a car. You probably have a couple cars. Yeah. How many cars have you owned in your lifetime? Um, boy, probably a dozen. Probably yeah, probably just south of a dozen. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I have never driven in a Formula One vehicle, have you? No. And I never will. I don't think there's any chance. No, I think this is spot on, too. As, um, and so uh, I've, I've been watching this this documentary series on F1 racing on Netflix for a while. And indeed, you, you, they, um, to get into the sport, uh, I mean, the, the amount of money that you have to have. And for a lot of these... What, what is the great cost? Is it it's, the gloves or the... The what is what's the thing that they put the hood ornament is that the expensive part? That's just the tip of the iceberg, okay. man. I mean the 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 amount of engineering that goes into this, the the, the teams, um, the organization. I mean it's millions of dollars, and so many of these teams are owned by these multimillionaires who um, Saudi princes, something kind of kind of like that, right. um, but that uh, have all of this money, and so uh, they have to find some place to put it. And so they, they love racing. And so you have kind of these these elites of elites in society that own these teams and organize these teams. And it's it sounds as I mean, it was exactly like the right. the, the, the chariot racers here. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah. The, the level of the bar of entry into, into F1, it's not like, oh, yeah, you go, you know, you you, you start in the the, uh, the, the the little league baseball team. You work work your, way, your way up through right. the minor leagues. No, no, no. No. Yeah. Have you ever uh, done any auto racing? No. Good. I'd be, I would be terrible at that. My goodness, yeah. Okay. Jeff, what about the guy with the long hair? Oh, yeah. Should we read a little bit more from yes. Maru here? Because remember, we're in the category on the democratization of the aristocratic tradition. Right. So Maru writes, says, the aristocratic families were fond of giving their children names compounded from hip or hippos, the ancient Greek word for, for a horse. Uh, you may remember Phidippides, the name of that self-made man in Aristophanes' clouds, coins for his son. Because his aristocratic wife insists uh, she wanted a name with hippo in it, like uh, Xanthippos. Or Which is yellow horse. Yellow horse, yes. Yep. Or Karipos or Kalipidos. Uh, the incident is so vivid and significant for our present purpose that's worth recalling. The mother dreams of a wonderful future for her son. When you are grown up and drive your chariot to town, like your great uncle, the illustrious Megacles, wearing the long tunic of the racing charioteer, but the father bewares the results of the education Phidippides has had to satisfy his mother's ambition. He has long hair, rides a horse, drives a two-horse chariot, and dreams about horses when he's asleep. <laughs> so it's the, the dissolute life of the young man who has too much money and nothing worth doing, I suppose. Right, right, right. That's such a great play. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, it's no surprise that Maru brings the, the Aristophanes and this particular play up a lot in talking about education. Because, of course, in that play, um, his uh, strip society's son has gotten to all of these... Um, debt problems right right he's blowing through money and blowing so through cash. and so he's his kind of his hail mary passes um is to to uh, go away to uh, socrates think shop right where he can learn the frontisterion yes the, the to to uh to learn how to uh argue his way out of these debts right that's the point of the education yep. to kind of to, to become a silver silver tongued devil in the courtroom mm -hmm. and that's the inflection point between the old athenian education and uh, the oncoming sophistic and Socratic world, yes. which is just about to dawn. Yeah. So he concludes that particular episode, Malchru does. He says, in the fourth century, Xenophon, you know, famous uh, Attic stylist, who was a typical representative of the aristocratic class, 
Xenophon thought it worthwhile to write three technical books on hunting, on riding, and the cavalry officer. Hmm. It sounds like riveting reading. It does. <laughs> I don't think any of those survive, do they? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think those are all lost works. Mm -hmm. yeah. hmm. So why was riding a reserved sport? Why was riding what? I'm sorry. A reserved sport. Why, why was it that not everyone could participate? Oh, because it was expensive. It was Formula One. It was totally Formula One. Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of Formula One. Yes. It's time for the ads. Let's do it. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by the good folks at Ratio Coffee. Dave, I'm going to turn it right over to you. Because what? Because I, I think you have a poem. No. Yeah, for, for us about... I about, have a limerick. You have a limerick. Okay. I have a ditty. Okay, you have a ditty. Okay. <clears throat> right. we, written by a strong-armed chicken, something like that. <laughs> Would you share it with us, please? Okay, if I must. Yes. Percolate, drip, brew, and froth, but low quality, making you wroth. Then ratios your baby. Don't even say maybe, or old brew leaves you colder than hoth. Oh, a Star Wars reference. I slipped in a Star Wars reference nice. at the end. And you know what? I don't like Star Wars. <laughs> but you knew about the ice planet of Hoth. I do, and everybody else likes Star Wars, so I thought I'd use it. That was interesting. I, I mean, I heard those first two rhymes, and I was thinking in my head as you were going along, how's he going to close this out? There's no way he's going to find a third word that sounds like froth, roth. And, and I got it. Hoth, you dropped that bomb. Yeah, right? I toyed with um, mispronouncing the word cost, like cost. Yeah. But I decided wisely uh, not to Hoth do that. Hoth was the was the right choice, right? What are we selling here? We're not talking about Star Wars. We are talking about coffee here. Coffee. We're talking about Ratio Coffee. And we're talking about this company that makes these incredible machines: uh, the Ratio Eight, the Ratio Six, and coming soon, the Ratio Four. Right. Um, which is uh, it, it promises to um, have that same high quality brew, but at a much more accessible, affordable cost. That's right. Um, more of a single serve. Yes. Um, fits right. In a you know takes up less countertop real estate. Equally beautiful, equally well engineered and machined. Yeah. But Jeff, can you say a few things that you like about your Ratio 8 in the stainless steel, I think? I have the stainless steel, um, the, the carafe. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love so many things about it. I have, I love the metal cone that I put my grounds in every morning. Um, I, I'm always amazed by how long that carafe can keep that coffee hot. I get up a lot earlier than my wife does. I was up at 5 a.m. this morning. Oh my goodness. And um, and so I brew the coffee right away because I want to drink it right away. And my wife wakes up a good two hours later huh. and it's still piping hot. Wow, that expression, you know, they used to say down on the farm, that was called being up with the chickens. Yes, right. And I, I, I and I also go to bed with the chickens uh, usually as well. That's, when do the chickens go to bed? Well, this is the, my uh, when I describe my my getting up and sleeping habits. My mother in law she will she she once said to me, "Oh, you go to bed with the chickens." So apparently, go to, <laughs> the chickens go to bed early so, so they can get up early. Are you already a member of AARP? <laughs> <laughs> Man, yes, uh, I, I get their flyers in the mail. Okay, already. yeah, right. Um, what so were we talking about? We were saying that. Yeah. You get up much earlier than your wife. I do. And you make coffee, yes. and a couple hours later, it's still fresh and piping hot. Right. Now, a, a, a new listener might wonder, well, what's so special about that? You've got the scorch pad keeping it warm, but no, 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 no not here. That's right. It's easy to keep coffee warm if you're constantly burning it. Right, exactly. But the, this is, it sits in this... Um, in this stainless steel carafe. Hulking flag. The, the, the installation on this thing is amazing. It is and incredible. So, and I, I believe my wife could get up at 9, 10 o'clock and that's, that stuff would still be hot. But yeah. the great thing is also the taste, right? Yeah. Because it's not burned. Right. Because there's an off-gassing mechanism to let the harsh CO2 off into the biosphere. The bloom method. The right? bloom method. There's yep. a bloom, there's a brew, and then there's... You're ready to go. And so what is it 
that one does not taste in this coffee that has been brewed through the ratio eight or six. Well, our longtime listeners will know the answer to that question. It's the brackish tang. That's it, correct. It's completely gone. So let's say, listener, you want to avoid some brackish tang. Yep. And you want to up your coffee game. Yes. And you want to support this humble podcast. Jeff, can you tell them what they should do? Well, they should go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O coffee.com. Check out these machines. Um, they've got the ratio eight, the six, like we said, the four is coming soon. They have lots of, of, of accessories. They sell their own coffee. See what they got. Um, but if you want one of these wonderful machines, uh, type in the coupon code A-N-C-O-5-R. And Dave, that'll get them... That'll get them 15% off their order. Yes. And you, you don't want to miss out on this. You do not. This episode is also brought to you by the great folks at Hackett Publishing. Hackett has offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Indianapolis, Indiana. And for low these 53 three years, mm-hmm. they have been bringing affordable, high-quality translations of the classics and many other works of literature to a broad audience. Right. Jeff, just just name two things, if you would, that you love about Hackett. Succinct. I would say that you know, unlike the the kind of those those stuffy elites of right. of the uh, of Athens at the time we're talking about, um, Hackett, they want they want uh, the class to be available to the masses, mm-hmm. right? And so they are they are one of these wonderful companies that in the the term we love to use, they are keeping the flame alive. Right. Um, they have so many different translations of classical works as well as many other um, uh, other uh, places in academia as well. And it's affordable. It's high quality. It's affordable. It's attractive. Um, a- anybody who wants these texts, there's a low level of entry. It's right. great. Yeah. Don't you remember I said, just keep it to two? I'm sorry. You know, I, you know I, get, I, I, I get a little excited. It's okay. Yeah. Remember when I said tripartite and then listed about seven things? Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's we'll a pro- let it go. It's a problem we have. Yeah. yeah. Dave, what, what about you? How about you? Um, Affordability, yep. um, breadth, and scope of the things that they cover. I routinely get asked on social media and other places, so what do you recommend that I read for X or Y? Mm-hmm. And inevitably, I go to Hackett's website and see, I bet they have something, and lo and behold, they do. Yeah. Something excellent, and then I recommend, hey, use our coupon code. Uh, I can definitely recommend this as a quality text. I know the translation is going to be top-notch, like the one by Stanley Lombardo for Mm -hmm. the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Metamorphoses of Ovid. Yeah. Also, the Ambrose translation of the Metamorphoses. And some big news to break, Jeff. Yes. um, Mr. Lombardo, who is so well-represented on this podcast and at Hackett, uh, we're going to be interviewing him soon. Yes, he's going to be a guest on our podcast. So hopefully uh, early in the new year, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't wait. So, listener, you want to um, do a couple things, maybe. You want to uh, expand your reading library with reliable and inexpensive texts. And secondly, you want to support this podcast, we hope. So here's what we think you should do. You should go to hackitpublishing.com, check out their amazing catalog, find the text you want, drop them in the little satchel, and put in this coupon code, AN2023, and that will get you 20% off your entire order and, Dave, free shipping. Right. Check it out. Okay, Jeff, as we get back into it, we're still in chapter four, the old Athenian education, and we're now in the section on page 39, the first appearance of the school. Yes. And I think the point here that Mahru makes, which is so insightful, is that when you have a new ideal being uh, enacted in society or celebrated, you have to have new institutions develop to entrench that ideal and to preserve it and expand it. Yes. And what is that new institution that was developed? The school. That's right. (laughs) 
Did I kind of give it away when I said first appearance of the school? <laughs> yeah, you might have. Okay. Right, yeah. But let's dig into that a little bit. Now, uh, my, my sense is that, I mean, in, a, um, in the next chapter, it seems that Maru in some ways kind of walks us back because he talks about the Pythagoreans, mm-hmm. right? Um, which are, you know, uh, predate this, this. Well, I guess maybe. Yeah, they predate this a little for bit. sure. And, um, and they, they founded something that we might call a, a school. But it was a and, commune. Yeah. It had a heavy religious overtones. Right. Um, and it was built around a singular individual. So Pythagoras was more like a, an early sophist, I would say, okay. than the kind of thing that Mahru is describing near the end of 5th century Athens. At okay. least that's my take. Right, right, right. Because right. you could check in and out of these places. Parents moved their kids around from one school, one teacher to the next. Yeah. If you want to be a Pythagorean... You've got to be all in. It was a bigger commitment. That's true. Okay. You yeah. know, things like don't eat beans, don't poke a fire, don't jump over a rod, iron rod. You remember that. Right. Yeah. Never eat spinach with a chicken. That's correct. Something like that. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. I think he does make a point later on is that um, that a lot of, kind of later schools maybe took their cue from Pythagoras, yes. but we're going to we're gonna make this more, uh, more open and we're going to make it more... Um, I guess more kind of secularized, we yeah. would say. Yeah. In the same way that uh, public schools took their cues from the schools of the Jesuits and yeah. the, the cloisters and the monasteries and so forth. Exactly. exactly. So bottom of page 39, Malkru makes this very astute observation. The new education intended for all free men, so that's the democratic spirit, yes. right, was necessarily of a collective character, right? We have to all do it together. Mm-hmm. And this led to the creation and development of the school. This was a decisive step, says Malkru. It is of paramount importance in the whole of the subsequent history. Okay. So that's it right there. Yep. Yep. Now, I think this, um, he goes on at the, at the bottom of page 39. I thought this was really interesting. He talks about how uh, the aristocratic poets Theognis and Pindar faithfully reflect the scorn and suspicion with which the old nobility reacted to this development. And he goes on to say that. So, so no schools. No schools. Right. Because this idea that arete... Um, it can't be taught, right? Right. Um, you, you're you either are born with it or or you or or you or you're not, right? And Pindar and Theognis, they they antedate uh, Socrates by you know forty years or so. Yeah, Socrates is the one who really brought home this question, right? Mm-hmm. Could arete, valor, virtue, be acquired by teaching? Yeah. Or does it have to be something innate in the individual? Right. 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 This is the question of the Gorgias, right? It's techne versus episteme. You can teach techne, you can teach techniques of how to do something. Right. But is that the same thing as true knowledge? Right. And my sense here is that um, from an aristocratic point of view, the, the elites would say, well, no, we have the arete. We have the, we have the monopoly on arete. It's, it's kind of, it's in our bloodline, right? Right. Um, it, you know, one of my, my uh, you know, recent myth class, I was talking about how one of the students asked, you know, why are all these stories about Heracles having so many children right and how this was used by um you know elite families historically saying well we can trace our bloodline back to heracles right. as a way of kind of legitimizing their place in society i think that that links to this is that well you know that comes with without saying you know that, that it's in our right it's in our blood right and the lower classes simply can't have that and mm. so yeah teach them a skill but as far as excellence no that's, that they could never star in a tragedy, for example. They got right. no, no royal lineage. Right, right, right. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. So then uh, for the rest of the chapter, we have to move along a little more quickly here, but there yeah. are some really exceptional points to mention. First is physical education. So mm-hmm. who were the teachers that were hired for these aristocratic elites? Uh, says Mahru, the main feature of aristocratic culture was sport. 
And so in the old educational system, physical uh, training occupied the place of honor. The aim of this training was to prepare the child for athletic contests, racing, the discus, the javelin, the long jump, wrestling, and boxing. So they hired an expert, a PT. A PT? Yeah, not a physical trainer. No? A pidotribase. A pidotribase? Pidotribase. The person who trained the child. His coach. He had a professional coach. Huh. You've got three kids, and uh, they've been in sports. I'm sure you're hiring private trainers for their basketball and other things. Not a one. No. No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They could use it, though, let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So there were these professional coaches. Right. um, That were... Well, they're playing. This is this is a central role in, in the child's education, education yes, for okay. the aristocratic elites, right, who were seeking to distinguish themselves from the democratization of education in these new schools, right, right. And I think he, t- he mentioned something about like the um, the Olympic athletes, the elite athletes who could afford to go and train at Olympia right. all year long, where well, that was off the table for your your um, your local uh, Athenian yokel. That's correct. Yeah. Yep. What about musical education, Jeff? Page 41. Yeah. Um, so uh, he, uh, Maru says, in the Republic, Plato, describing the education of the good old days, tells us that it was, it was two-sided, comprising gymnastics for the body and music for the soul. From the beginning, as we have seen, Greek culture and hence Greek education had included, besides sport, an element that was spiritual, intellectual, and artistic all at once. In Plato... Music signifies the domain of the muses in the widest sense, but in ancient education generally, music in the narrower sense of the word, i.e. vocal and instrumental music, came first in this category. Aristophanes has the children marching in crocodile. Did you say marching in crocs? <laughs> Seems a little awkward. Not only to the gymnastics teachers, but also ace kitharistu, to the kither player or the music master, even if the snow is falling as thick as flour. Interesting. Hmm. So the next section, Education Through Poetry, mm-hmm. brings us to the person of Solon. Who's that? Solon. Well, you know who Solon is. I, I know. But oh, you're just pretending not to know. Right. Okay. Well, dip your toes in this. Solon was... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Solon was a pre-Socratic philosopher. He was a statesman. He was a elected archon. He lived from 638 to 558. And from 594 to 593, he was a de facto ruler of the Athenian state. Someday we'll devote an entire episode or two uh, to his, him and his poetry because he's fascinating. Yeah. But, says Mahru on page 42, the truly Athenian poet who, like Tertius and Sparta, embodied the nation's wisdom was undoubtedly Solon. He certainly had an educational aim in view when he composed his elegies, which appeared in the form of moral injunctions to his fellow citizens. It seems clear that he was looked upon as the national spokesman. Consider, for instance, the way he was quoted in the law courts and the assembly by any orator in need of authority, even by Cleophon and Demosthenes. So Demosthenes is at least 200 years later. So he becomes a kind of authority along the lines of, of Homer, simply by quoting Solon, it, it, you have the imprimatur of, That's of, right. of authority. Okay. I was thinking he's quoted like, you know, some of the uh, American founding fathers, right. or you might quote John Locke or Rousseau or yeah. something, Voltaire, yes. right? So we have here um, a few lines of a fragment of his poetry, and then we have a translation by R.S. Hayes, and I think this fragment really captures well the conflict that's going on between you know, the fading of the warrior culture, the arrival of the scribe culture, and yet the aristocratic desire to hold on to their elite privileges, mm-hmm. um, even while democracy is um, 
taking over education. Okay. Okay. You want to read this Greek for us? Yeah, I'd like to read, um, let's see how, how well it goes. We'll read a few lines. So this is written in the elegiac couplet. We have one line of hexameter and a second line of pentameter. And it goes something like this. Demo men garadokatason gerasos son aparke. Times ut afalon ut epordrexamenos. Hoi de chon dunamin kai chre masen e son age toy. Kai tois ef frasamen, medena e kesakain. Estain dam fibalon crateron sacas am fataroisi. Nikon duke ea su deterus adikos. Nicely done. Thank you. And can you read the translation for us, Jeff? Yes, this is from one R.S. Hayes. I gave the ordinary people a prize that is adequate for them, neither too much nor too little. And as for those who had power and were admired for their wealth, I made sure that nothing ugly would happen to them. I defended both groups with a strong shield. I allowed neither group to bully the other unjustly. Yeah. So he's trying to bridge the gap. Yes. Okay. This is this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. How are you going to hold together this society which is splintering along democratic versus aristocratic lines right. when society has been largely demilitarized following the archaic age? Yes. Yeah. So this is what Solon does. He says, I used a strong shield, a sakos. I held a shield over both groups and by uh, dint of his genius and legislation made them get along. Yeah. Fascinating. I, I have to wonder with the, you know, American election coming. Well, we shouldn't probably talk about yeah. that. <laughs> so wrapping it up then, yeah. literary education, uh, the notion of kalakagathia, Jeff. This yes. is page 43, the ideal. What is kalakagathia? Well, as Maru writes at the bottom of page 43, the guiding ideal of this old education was still an ethical one. It can be expressed in one word, kalakagathia, being a man both beautiful and good. So... Okay, so but what does good mean? Right. And so this is good. Agathos signifies the moral aspect, which was essential, as we have seen with the social and worldly implications which it had had from the very beginning. Beautiful, kalos, refers to physical beauty and with the inevitable aura of eroticism that had come to accompany it. And here I, Maru again saying, must try to explode the modern myth that Greek civilization achieved a harmonious synthesis between racial beauty, the highest highest artistic perfection, and the most elevated flights of speculative thought. Well, that's so, interesting. Well, I mean, so is he trying to say that that Kalos Kagathia is a kind of a sound mind and a sound body? Yes. Okay. All right. Which is, a, of course, a quote from Juvenal, right? Main son in Corporasano. Yeah. Yes. He's saying that's basically what it is. And he says, I must try to explode the modern myth that Greek civilization achieved a harmonious synthesis between, quote, racial beauty, the highest artistic perfection, and the most elevated flights of speculative thought. Hmm. So in that part, Mahru tells us in the footnote, he's taking aim at, quote, a French vulgarizer of Nazi thought, Hmm. uh, a man named uh, J.E. Spenle. Okay. So the idea is that somehow the, uh, the you know the Greeks were fixated on their own racial purity yeah. ideas, and somehow they developed this to a high degree. He says that's not really what's going on yeah. at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. All right, Dave. Since we're up against it yes. uh, here, uh, do you have um, a way that we, you can kind of wrap this chapter up for us? I think so. Yeah. Yep. So we're finishing with chapter four. I guess we have to save the really great stuff in chapter five for next time. Yep. Okay. So Marou says on page 44, I think this really encapsulates it. This ideal of a fully developed mind in a superb body, this is Kalokagathia, may not be entirely imaginary. It was at least in Plato's mind when he was creating his unforgettable young men. And then he mentions a number that appear in the dialogues. 
And he says, but it must nevertheless be realized that if this ideal was ever achieved, it could only have been for a fleeting moment of unstable equilibrium between two opposite tendencies, that is, moral worth and physical beauty, which could only grow at each other's expense. Hmm. A time was to come when Greek education would be, like ours, essentially intellectual. Under the influence of men like Socrates, who was ugly, and hmm. Epicurus, whose health was poor. Hmm. So what do you think of those claims? What, what do you make of that? So is, is he, I mean, is he saying that um, okay, education is, it moves away from the idea of, of kind of physical perfection fairly quickly? Correct. And it becomes... Because it's un, unattainable right. to cultivate the beauty of the body and the beauty of the mind simultaneously. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm interested to see kind of where he goes with this, right? I, I like how he ends that with, um, with Socrates and, and Epicurus who were not... Um, uh, beauties right. in their own right. All right. Well, um, I think that's a, a good a place to kind of leave okay. our, our audience kind of wondering and us thinking about these questions. And um, we'll pick this up uh, with, with an, in another episode. Because we're up against it. We are. Okay. So we got to get out of here, Jeff. But we, uh, we got to take care of a, a few housekeeping items. Of right? course. Right. Um, so we have people to thank, as always. Uh, Mishka, our wonderful engineer. Ken Tamplin, Scott Vinzen for the great music you hear throughout the episode. Dave, you want to say a thing about the Moss Method before well, we I, go? Well, I do. Yes. And that is, um, we got a great response to our uh, Black Friday Cyber Monday. Excellent. And we're going to have a new year's day sale all right january 1 coming up uh, offer some similar discounts um, so go to mossmethod.com and check out the program got a number of students matriculating through it very successfully excellent uh, learning their greek from psi to shining psi oh yes yeah and <laughs> uh latinperdm.com slash llpsi if you want to study some latin with me excellent now these are self-paced courses but they both feature weekly office hours where you can interact and ask me anything you want about any Greek or Latin author. Not to say I always have the answer, but I think I can find it, and uh, we learn together. And you, you also get to interact with students from around the world, right? Oh, it's fantastic. That sounds so cool. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, Jeff, if they want to uh, subscribe, leave a review, what kinds of things should they do there? They should write, if they want to write to you, they can write to you at dave at daveadnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or write to Jeff yes. at jeff at adnauseum.com. There's a V in ad nauseum. Yeah. You can pick up a nice t-shirt, quite no Kent, do Kent. And uh, what's, uh, what's on tap for next week, Jeff? Um, we're thinking about doing a Christmas episode, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, I have some great ideas in the hopper. The, the schedule might be a little um, a little sketchy because we, we've both been under the weather. And it's a crazy time of year. It in terms really of, is. Uh, family and, and other demands. Yep. But we're going to see what we can do. Yeah, fantastic. Yep. All right, Jeff, I think you have the gustatory parting shot. I do. This comes from the great John Steinbeck from his work, uh, Tortilla Flat. Have you read Tortilla Flat? No, I love... Do you know what it's about? I don't. I love I loved East of Eden and, yeah. and Grace of Wrath. And, uh, I read uh, The Red Pony. Oh, I didn't. I haven't read that one. I think that's yeah. the only Steinbeck I've read. Yes, I, I've, I've, uh, the stuff I've read is, is uh, of his. I'm a big fan. But if I can ask, yes. what is Tortilla Flat? Is this a place where he lived? It sounds. Like or a, is this the opposite of? I mean, what would the opposite be? Like a a, a bulging tortilla? Tortilla bumpy? <laughs> bumpy? I don't know exactly. Okay. Right. Uh, so I don't. If the tortilla here was referring to 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 food here, but our the quote here refers to food. It does. Yes. And, and so, it makes no sense to me. It, me either. But in Tortilla Flat, Steinbeck writes, beans are a warm cloak against economic cold. I can just picture myself wearing a cloak of beans. Yes. All I know is that a Pythagorean probably would not like this. He would cloak. not go for it. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Nice.